0: people in locked situations and well away from home.
1: Paul? Thanks Tim and and good morning everybody. Uh, I think that's a very good link to this work because Wharton Hall had a closed culture that became an abusive culture and I think that could happen in other places. Um, It was March last year that we published our briefing on mental health rehabilitation wards. We we sent an information request to every provider, both um, independent and NHS. That was in October 2017. We got about a 90% return. We identified uh, 3,700 people on 311 wards, uh, and just over half of those people were in, in an independent sector bed. The main conclusions were that many of these people were a long way from home, uh, they, they were dislocated from local services in other ways. Um, the registered manager, in many cases, couldn't even name the trust that would provide aftercare, uh, and many people were in a different area to the, the, the body funding the care. Compared with the NHS, um, the independent sector had more wards that were categorised as lot rehabilitation. Um, the patients there had been there for twice as long uh, as, as in NHS services, um, and, and therefore, the actual cost of that placement was, was twice as high very great variation between clinical commissioning groups and the number of beds that they funded. Uh, About 20% of CCGs accounted for 50% of the beds. Uh, And as far as trusts are concerned, uh, the number varied enormously too, uh, between having no patients in a mental health rehabilitation bed um, out of area to having 85. Now this is costing uh, the NHS uh, over half a billion pounds a year, and those CCGs with the highest use are spending about £19,000 a day on this element of service alone. So we recommended um, to the Department of Health and Social Care, NHS England and NHS Improvement that they get a plan together to engage with local health and care systems uh, to work to reduce the number of patients placed in rehab wards that are out of area. Uh, we've just repeated the survey um, and we'll be publishing those results in Ju- uh, July with an update.
0: Fantastic.
1: Um, well,
0: we have here Sue Hashley. Who, Sue, you, you've actually been in, in locked rehab, haven't you?
2: Yeah, good morning, Tim. Um, yes, yeah, so I was out of area. I was about two hours from my home and my family um, in a locked rehab service for about four and a half years. Uh-huh. Um, a short period of time in Low Secure, and then I stepped down to locked rehab. Um, I can honestly sit here and say that probably two years of that time were probably... Didn't need to be there. I could have been moved on, but um, much of the issues uh, seem to surround around not being able to access leave, not being able to reconnect with the community. Um, I actually developed some se- uh, secondary conditions of hypercusis whilst I was in the service because I wasn't able to get out enough. No. Um, so for me, I, I think my anxiety increased yeah. um, because I was spending more time in 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 on the ward than I was getting out and about. So for me, there are a num- there were a number of issues and. One also was that in four and a half years I had five different care coordinators, long periods of time without any connection with my home team at all. Um, finally, when I did get somebody who was really proactive with me, it um, made a big difference. Um, and I think the only reason in the end that I left when I did, and I think I could, you know, worry that some people stay, could even be there still now, and this is two years on. Um, Much to do with the fact that I took control of the situation. Somebody had advised me, another service user who'd been in that service, had advised me to try and connect with housing provision myself to find my own supported housing. So on leave, I went to the local library and did that myself. Um, And I then went to my own care team and said, these are the options, could we explore these? I don't think that would have been done unless I would been proactive with that.
0: So, a sort of self help inpatient
2: yeah. spells. Yeah, and also some, um, I pushed on voluntary work in my local community as well, which wasn't um, supported particularly initially by my service, and they were very anxious about that. Um, but that really helped build my confidence. So, those were two things that were really important to me, and I I, I worry about it. I could, could have stayed there longer if I hadn't have been proactive. But not everybody's got the capacity to do that or the motivation no, to I'm do sure, that. No, I'm sure, and That's I, I mean, I know problems. that
0: there are people who have been there. Considerably longer than four and a half years. Yeah. Even though four and a half years is deeply shocking. Um, what about therapy? Do you get do they So did I waited
2: eighteen months for the therapy that I was advised would be best that was the reason I was placed there. Um so you so wait, eighteen, 18 months. months. And to the point where actually my home team were looking to move me to another service. And when that <coughs> message was shared with the hospital, they very quickly found somebody to, to work me. I, I did some schema therapy and it wasn't uh, readily available apparently for some time.
0: And what's this, this was a, a private?
2: So. This was an independent provider. Right. Yeah. So I've had experience of, of that locked rehab in independent. I've also had three acute admissions. One was local and I've had two out of area as right. well.
0: But four and a half years?
2: Yeah. Two, two years, with somebody uh, a little bit older like myself, I've also got elderly family, you know, my parents are elderly, so for them to travel that was a real challenge for them. And what's to... it like coming out after four and a half years? Um, there's not the support in the community, I think if I hadn't have developed the confidence in voluntary work and those types of things, I don't think I'd have been well equipped. Um, I think the supportive housing options, um, have particularly with personality disorders, have a real poor understanding of those issues, self-harm issues. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think the provision's out there. Very fortunate that my um, care team uh, are quite proactive, so I am, I am with a community forensic team sure. and I think that, and, and certainly the work that I've done uh, nationally on other projects, I think that makes a big difference, somebody at the forensic services, I think when you've got a, a transition into a community forensic team that's really helpful. I, I think they better understand length of stay, the longer length of stay. Yeah. You
0: you were involved in producing a a, sort of a little book on
2: yeah so um, the myself and two peers this. did um, a, a project where we, we explored the lived experience of over two hundred women in secure care from um, high secure down to low secure yeah. um, across the country predominantly in the northwest and the east midlands um, and you know some of those highlights we found that whilst your know, NHS benchmarking is looking at seven hundred sixty two days I think in inpatient care haven't captured the whole journey and many of the women we spoke to are uh, 3.8 services they'd on average been in so they tra- traveled many times to different services so, so the their stay, length of stay is yeah, much much longer than is recorded by national bench sure. okay. so we found that 3321 days which is nine years and that was for people still in services they hadn't finished their journey wow. so it was quite quite a powerful response yeah. and these were people that we didn't cherry pick these were people that just came and spoke to us Um, average distance was 1.6 hours from home. We didn't ask if they were out of area because I don't think patients would understand who was funding it. But in terms of the distance, um, as I said, 3.8. And there was also regional variation, definitely. The Northwest, uh, I think, had moved much further forwards with getting people closer to home um, in comparison to the East Midlands. And that may be around the fact that there's a larger number of independent services um, who have women. Um, specifically in the, in their case.
0: Listen, th- thank you very much and, and stay for the discussion. Um, and if uh, w- we, can, we can get your booklet online so
2: that... Yeah, I think so. I, it was a co- conference um, resource, but I, I believe there's... there's pro- I'm sure we can give information out on how that might be... Um, right, sort, okay. yeah, we'll do that. As afterwards. a PDF, if okay. nothing else. Um, now, we've also got John Hendel here. And you, was it
3: your daughter? My daughter, our daughter, yeah. <coughs> was, was in lottery for how long? Uh, she's still in doing it. She, okay. in, altogether, she's been out of area for six and a half years. <coughs> the yeah. first year, there's eating disorder in it, I think Five and a half years currently in her current clinic. <coughs> it's not as bad in the Miles' term, it's about 50 miles. The eating disorder was of 70, but it's travelling into London. Sure. Which. Journey. Say if we go by public transport, hour and a half, two hours, on the road, if it's a clear run it's 45, 50, 60 minutes, but it's down the A13, which is very, very poor, and that can take two hours, two and a half hours. Well, it's definitely not at home, <coughs> is it? It's not at home. The issues for us mainly have been, certainly cost, the financial cost is mean, and in, in my case, I was, I'd take early retirement and so uh, I was then had to go back to work part time so fitting around it I took a night job working overnight so you know it eats into your time because the other thing it's not just the money it's the time and you tend to do visits at weekends you lose it eats into the time you can spend with other family members with friends how many other family members We've got there? another daughter granddaughter Right. And when I first went in, I had my parents that was looking after as well. <coughs> right. And you lose, that's an issue. You, it's mm. not just the money, it's the time. And you sort of lose connection with everybody, You lose connection. Yeah. And if you come to think about you want to go on holiday, fine, two weeks, you go no away, but then try to find someone to do a visit in that two weeks because if, if our daughter wasn't getting a visit, she was very low at different times, so in certain times we cancelled holidays so we could continue because we couldn't find anyone to cover the visits. Yeah. Um. And do,
0: do the do the hospitals keep you up to date and do they keep you connected or is it
3: just down to you? It depends on the staff at the time. We've outlasted nearly every member of staff at the current unit, and as a the whole, they've been very good. And you know, but. What's happened is you lose contact with your local trust. Yeah. She's supposed to have a care coordinator, which. But does she? Well, we occasionally there's a tribunal coming up. Get a phone call saying we've got to do a report today, (laughs) (laughs) and that's it. (laughs) There is no. Oh dear. We go myself and my wife to some of their open board meetings of the trust, even ask them about what they do with out of area, Um, carers and service users. and the what's the response? Well the first one they said we haven't got the information, we we'll are go away and, and find it out. So we went back to the second meeting and they found out the information and it was wrong because they gave us a figure for out of area service users, which was smaller than the number of out us- out area users in the unit where my daughter is. So it was but so and I think there is an issue. If you're if you're funded by NHS England, not like the local transport commissioners, then there seems to be less pressure on them to want to take an interest in it. It's just an observation, I'm not saying... No,
0: sure. (coughs) I mean, this is a problem, it's a national problem. There's virtually nowhere in the country that that doesn't have some sort of of out of area Mm -hmm. emplacement of Mm -hmm. some kind.
3: Yeah, and and you can understand, if there's a specialist service, fine, you've got to have out of area. Not all certain trusts can do it. And... And the bottom line is you'd want your friend relative to be safe, and that has to come first. But it does have a big impact on people. If, you, if you're committed to supporting your person in the hospital, it's like, as, as Sue mentioned, there's, there's sometimes, I thought it be granted leave if we could get out there to take her out. And we've had that voluntary work. They can have the staff to take our daughter to do voluntary work in the community. They said, could you come up during the day and take her? So you'd have to take her to (coughs) do voluntary work. Yeah. So that would mean living out the whole day. Yeah. Yeah. Which is if it's a fun community, it's like doing environmental work in old dock or something, fine. But it's standing at the end of a London triathlon (laughs) is not so much fun. No. Or you're just standing there watching your daughter hanging out water. It's it's things you do to support the person. And it's so those little things that... And it's, it sounds like there's not much support for you as carers. There I mean, is zero support. For zero. Carers support for carers. Zero. Right. Yeah. Okay. And people talk about supporting carers and it doesn't happen. It really doesn't. No. And we've got one... When I've been to our open board meetings, from their reports, they're one of the best trusts in the country, supposedly. But okay. in, in terms of supporting carers, it's
0: zero. Okay. Well, listen. Th- thank you very much, John. I think that that has has got the message clearly there. This is very bad for the patient. It's very bad for the carers, and and it's time we did something about it. Now, I'm very pleased that that um, that um, we can tell you a bit about something that's that's quite good. Adrian, you, you you've been talking to people in Lambeth, is that right?
4: Yeah. Thanks, uh, Tim. And you know, when you listen to Sue and John talking about. Their experiences really—it's uh, you know we it, you know it, it's a responsibility of all of us really to do something about this. And in Lambeth, we we do have some good news. And I've been speaking to Hirala Rose, and she is the head of service for the voluntary partner in the Lambeth Integrated Personalised Support Alliance. And this is an alliance of five organisations, and they are the Mental Health Trust, Slam, uh, the Lambeth CCG. Uh, Certitude, uh, who she works for, uh, the Housing Association, Thames Reach, and Lambeth Social Services. So what have they done? They've focused on just the sort of things we've been hearing about, supporting people using a rehabilitation pathway. Uh, They have a fundamental belief that people can recover and stay well with the right community offer, and that only by working together can they achieve Groundbreaking change. So they pull data, budgets, and outcomes. So where did they start? They had a 12 million pound spend for not great outcomes. I think some of the outcomes we've been hearing about: uh, 210 people altogether. Uh, use of inpatient residential and nursing care high. Uh, use of community personalised uh, care and local options pretty, pretty low. So. Uh, their contracting was outcome-based, relationship-focused. I'll come back to the importance of relationships between organisations as well, as, of course, with users and carers. Uh, values and behaviours were written into the contract, an acceptance that uh, there had to be a bit of pain to get some gain, People, everybody had to give something, uh, risk-sharing, money following the person, and everybody in the Alliance having the same objectives. What did they achieve? a 60% reduction in admission rates to rehab wards, 67% reduction in entrance to residential care, 30% increase in discharges from residential care, year on year saving, they were uh, tasked with a 20% uh, overall saving, which they met, uh, they developed some new services, and they closed one rehabilitation ward. So what was the certitude offer? The One of the voluntary partners they were involved in joint decision making in health and social care panels they developed a seven bedded community rehabilitation supported living service with clinical inreach and initially they had a trained nurses as part of the team they decided in the end that wasn't the way to go they actually wanted the the inreach they had seven self contained studio flats with 24 hour support uh, available your own front door but actually support Immediately available, and a 12-bedded female-only supported living service for women uh, moving out of restricted settings, trauma-informed, and for up to five years. So, how many how many people did they bring back from out of area? Is it? They, uh, to be honest, they they had a relatively small number out of area. They focused initially on in area and getting those services right. So, it was a relatively the majority were moved within services actually in area rather than uh, out of area. So they essentially
0: de-institutionalised their response within area and then brought some people
4: back. That's absolutely right. And I guess their top tips were before you start, they started in uh, 2015, the pilot ended in 2017. They've now got a much bigger alliance across the whole of Lambeth with a much bigger budget of uh, 68 million. Uh, Meet regularly, discuss your vision. Um, understand one another and the the advantages each organisation had but also the restrictions that you uh, you work under um, they have an uh, alliance management team and a leadership team and all parts of the alliance actually sit on that and this is going to be my my saying of the, the month that um, if you build good relationships uh, you can call bullshit when bullshit occurs and that was, uh, here are the sort of top tip that and it's, it's absolutely right, you know, there was an openness and honesty about how each organisation operated. But you can only do that and challenge properly if you have those trusting relationships beforehand and if you're absolutely clear that everybody has the same objective. Fantastic. Okay, now, um, I should have said at the start that
0: we're going to extend this programme to 9.30 instead of 9.15 because there's so many people who've got something important to say. <laughs> Um, Now I'm going to ask um, the people who are working in NHS Improvement and NHS England um, who are leading different work programmes um, in the GURFD, that's Getting It Right First Time uh, programme, in the Secure Care programme where they're doing uh, new care models and the like, um, and then looking at uh, uh, acute out of area placements um, and mental health crisis um, where that's partly GIRT and it's partly NHS England. So perhaps sticking with locked rehab, um, we've got Sri Kaladindi, who's the national clinical lead for GERF on rehab. So just tell us really quickly, mm. top headlines. What, what what's the what's your GIRT program about? What can it do?
5: So thanks, Tim. So the GERFT rehab program is really thinking about getting the data across the whole of the rehab system. So right now we don't have good data uh, and we're having to resort to surveys every now and again to understand what the national picture is. So we'll get the data uh, across the whole system, so that's about inpatient, out of area and in area, and also what's in the community in terms of clinical rehab teams, or teams that have a rehab function, which is about supporting people in placements, and also supported housing, because all of that is part of the system. Once we have that information, we'll have an understanding of where the unwarranted variation is, where the good practice is. We already know where some of the good practice is, and be able to share that from a very practical perspective. Uh, and certainly what we'll be doing is going out and visiting every single trust in the country uh, in a very supportive way, really. You know, this is your data. What, what What's your action plan? How can we support you? There's regional support as well through GERFT in the hubs. Uh, seven regional hubs.
0: And how, how, how long do you think it's going to be before we'll see people, yeah, localities picking up this data and going, let's use it, bring people back?
5: So we're going to start the visits in January. My ask to people listening on the line is, you've already got the NHSBN data ask, which has got the GURFT information request on there as well now, right. but we're also going to be sending out separate GURFT questionnaires. Because quite a lot of this data right now isn't collected in the format that we need it to be. and In terms of time frame, uh, well, I mean, what I'd like and what the reality is are probably going to be a bit different. I think you and I have spoken about overall for all people in rehab out of areas to come back into area and to develop that pathway, we're thinking probably sort of three, five years. But obviously within that time, there are lots of people who can really get up and running within one
0: year, within two years. I mean, this is down to individual trusts, isn't it? Because, I mean, I I know I'm going to ask Mike just to say about when we did this in Sheffield, we had to go round and see all the people that were in locked rehab. um, And and it it was quite difficult to find the right lists in the CCG about where people were and some people were on the wrong sort. Yeah, some people were on CHC lists, some people were on IFR Mm. lists. And... Mike, how long did it take?
6: Uh, It took a couple of years overall. I think it could be done more quickly. I mean, I think the key message is, uh, and I think this came out in what was really clearly said by by our, our experts of lived experience and carer experiences, You can't run this by numbers on a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet and bed-night rates. You've got to go out there and meet people and understand where they're coming from, check that the care that they're getting meets their requirements. And if it doesn't do something about it, and the other thing you can do is bring that hugely expensive uh, resource, that, that, that half a billion pounds per year, back into local services, and that gives you the scope to provide unprecedentedly Intensive and comprehensive and psychologically informed care for people in their own homes. Fantastic.
5: Just to True. add, one of the other uh, main issues is about staff competencies within rehab settings. Really important. It's yeah. been flagged by Paul in that CQC report, and we do need to do something about that because otherwise we're warehousing people, people are not getting evidence based. No, evidence-based that's, I mean, that's
0: exactly what Sue was saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's low on therapy, high on detention. Fantastic. Okay. Well, we're also doing this with children, but in a slightly different way. It's not Locked not, not Rehab, but we've got a national commissioning system through NHS England, which puts children all over the place. So, Guy, you, you're now working with GERV. Tell us just, just a bit about what, 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 you, what you're doing.
7: Thanks, Tim. Can I just give you a few uh, of the headline figures, just so we see where the project yeah. is more likely to focus? So we know there's been an increase in the number of young people requiring Tier Four adolescent beds, but at the same time there's been an increase in the number of beds available. Um, however, bed occupancy is at 75%. But despite this, there's still long waits for, for for admissions, and the average length of stay remains at around about 61 days, which in adult adult terms would mean every young person is effectively in a rehab ward. Um, the cost is huge. 40% of the CAMS budget goes on. On the inpatient units, which covers around about four thousand young people, so about a cost of one hundred eighty thousand <coughs> pounds per admission. Fifty percent of the adolescent inpatient units are provided by the independent sector. So clearly, this is a system that needs to be focused on to try and find where, what the best models are, and how we can improve the efficiency.
0: You get you get stories. Um, uh, uh, I, I know this is absolutely true for some that that we used to be sending people sometimes from south of
7: England up to Scotland and it it's perhaps not so bad but it is still happening and that, that's certainly one of the, the, the areas that needs to be looked at because despite the bed occupancy at 75% we still have those long admissions and those long distances from home so there, there's still something there that is not working as effectively as we would like what we do know from the new care models and those which are the, the, the the first wave of new care models is that they have drastically changed that picture the number of out of area placements from the established new care models is far, far less. The South London Partnership is absolutely a, a, a good example of that. Um, but go, we'll, go, what, what have they done? So, through, so, the new care models is looking at a larger region, so, it's looking at a number of trusts and how they can use their bed stock more effectively. Um, and by having local management of that bed stock, uh, they're, they're able to, to, to manage who goes in and when. And repatriate people who have been further uh, placed further afield. So have they uh, have they stopped our fair placements for the not, children? Not or? stopped, but drastically reduced. Okay. And when are they going to stop it? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's where the next part of the project comes uh, comes into it, which is the crisis side. Right. So we we also know that that effective crisis teams decrease admissions. But even without the decreasing admissions, the e- economic evidence is very very clear that a, a robust crisis team which includes not just crisis assessments within A&E but also the, um, the, the intensive home treatment support and out of hours support as well um, has significant economic benefit and part of the new care models has been how the money saved by not sending people out of areas has been able to be we, um reinvested locally within these types of crisis services. Now, they've done that in Tees Esk and We Valley, haven't they? Yes. And had a real success in, in, in shifting money, going into beds, into new crisis teams. Yes, they're, they're the, six, they're, they're the six vanguards for crisis services have all demonstrated this economic benefit. So we, 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 can, we can put that in, we can make sure everyone who's listening,
0: well, all the chief execs, medical directors, mm-hmm. chief nurses, we, we can send them data on those vanguards and then contact them if they want.
7: Absolutely. But we also know at the moment, the, this type of comprehensive crisis service only covers 57% of CCGs. So there's still a huge amount of work to be done to make sure that, that that coverage is greater. And where the GERF project comes into it, is actually all of these crisis models are slightly different. We don't actually know which works better than the others. We haven't been able to bring the data from the crisis service, from the inpatient services together to be able to analyse that, to identify where that unwarranted variation is. So So, that's what you're doing, though, isn't it? Isn't that the Girth project, is to get the data so that you know where the variation is? Yes, absolutely. And and that's where this is going to be. It's a complicated project because we're trying to bring data from a number of different areas. We we, we have to include a large number of independent providers within this to give us the clear picture. And there's a huge amount of systems work when, when it comes to CAMS. So, so my, my ask around this, um, for, for everybody who's listening, is about how we can support this project and the, the, the systems engagement that's going to be needed at the visits that we undertake to ensure that we can really realise the benefits. Fantastic. We will be speaking to
0: our audience more about this. Um, now, uh, we're going to try and just see, I'm hoping that we've got David Fernley on the, on, on the line. David, are you there? Uh, Definitely no. So we are left with Daniel Dalton, who's a consultant forensic psychiatrist um, uh, and works with me. He he jointly chairs the programme of Care Board. Um, Daniel, what's been happening in the forensic world in secure care, new care models and the
8: like? Thanks, Tim. I'll try to fill David's shoes as best I can. Um, I mean, they're they're not new care models in forensic services. So since 2017, nationally, we've been piloting provider collaboratives, as um, Guy says, taking ownership of local and regional pathways so that they can meet the needs of their unique uh, population demands. And now, 61% of inpatient and community specialist forensic services are led by providers choosing how they will distribute their resources.
0: So 61% of what was previously commissioned by NHS England is now led by local trusts.
8: Devolved to groups of providers who really are the people who have the best understanding of what their population needs, distributing the resources the way they need. So, 39 million people in the country now are getting their care in secure services in a, in a system that's been devised by providers to meet the needs of those people. And as a result, we've seen, well, or partly as a result, but associated with this, we've seen a 15% reduction in out-of-area placements over the last two years. 15%? So that's 230 fewer people. Sorry, in what period of time is that 15% reduction? That's since the the programme started in 2017. And I don't think we can attribute the whole of that to the provider collaboratives because there's been a parallel process of innovation within the Secure Care Programme as well. I'll I'll talk briefly about that if I may. So the Secure Care Programme, and, and I think Sue started explaining some of the things that we found when we looked at services, and Sue's work has been really instrumental in this, we've identified particular groups of people where there are real challenges. So women, as Sue says, more than 60% of women in secure services have been in four or more different services with a a vast amount of hidden length of stay. And one of the things we found is that inflexibility in service provision is a major part of that problem. So when people get to a point in their pathway that they require a slightly different model of care, The service that they're in is unable to flex and meet those needs, partly because of the way that we've structured these services. So there's been an innovation to develop a blended model of women's services, and we've got three pilot sites currently establishing that, where flexible levels of staffing, the ability to change the the way the service models can, can happen so that the person within the care pathway doesn't need to move in order to receive the next type of phase of their treatment. The other thing Sue mentioned, which I think is really important, is to talk about the impact of community forensic services. So, so we think, based on the evidence of when there is a community forensic service in place, that you can expect a 24% reduction in length of stay if there's a community forensic service associated. 24%. It's a really substantial amount. And if we extrapolated that nationally, which is a conjectural, legitimacy we would expect about seven to eight hundred fewer inpatient beds to be occupied in secure this is a total of
0: how many is it about five or six thousand it, it's around beds? that yeah
8: so it's a substantial reduction and, and although the link in secure care between being close to home and length of stay isn't as clear obviously creating capacity in local systems is going to Give the opportunity to provide care closer to home. Okay, so you're saying if one major factor in this is providing
0: community based <coughs> forensic type services. Now, to what extent are they going
8: to do exactly the same as the ones we would have for lock prehab? Uh, I, think, I think it's a really good question, Tim. I mean, I think one of the things that's really important is these services aren't just providing an extended version of what happens in the community at the moment. They have to deliver a service which is capable of managing a degree of risk and complexity that perhaps would create anxiety in current systems and it would have to do that in partnership with housing providers, it would have to do it with the necessary skills to provide the kind of interventions that have only been available in inpatient services previously. So it would require a serious redeployment and reskilling of our current resources. But I think part of the challenge with out of area placements that we see is that it's not just the person who goes out of area the resources and expertise do as well and where we have highly specialised services such as for example secure deaf care we end up with pockets of expertise that generate the further expertise and then the rest of the system cannot manage the needs of people locally who have these particular issues. So for example the average length of stay in low secure deaf care at the moment is 6.6 years which compares to the average length of stay for standard low secure of 2.6 years because people can't get out, because the resources are all located in specialist centres. Gosh, that's not very good is it? It is a sad indictment I think of how we create these self-fulfilling systems which basically fuel their own uh, destinies. Okay, so um, I, I think we're getting a clearer picture. You know, we've got to have
0: uh, reinvest these resources in community-based services that, that get backed up by local beds not buy out-of-area beds, um, and that those resources are therapeutic, that they've got, that they can fit around the patient, but you've got to have housing providers, you've got to have, you've got to, you've got to have a, a, a community that's therapeutic rather than just dependent on therapeutic communities. I think that's right
8: and we have to find a way also so that where we do have specialist pockets of expertise they can spread their knowledge around the system so perhaps where there are highly specialised services encouraging them to reach out more and visit people where they are rather than bringing people to them. Okay
0: so we've, we've, we've covered the, the locked rehab end, we've covered uh, tier 4 cams, um, we've covered Uh, secure care and new care models Um, now um, all all of which you know lots of money tied up in this um, uh, and lots of heartache with thousands of people involved in it Um, let me come to um, Mike acute out of area placements this is this is a hundred million pounds per year currently being spent on out of area placements because we aren't managing our beds properly. Tell us what the problem is, Mike.
6: Okay, and uh, as everyone knows, it's in the five-year forward view to get these eliminated by uh, 2021. Uh, the, the doom and gloom part of the story is that for the the quarter, we, the last quarter that we've got information for, there were 60,000 out-of-area acute bed nights that are, corresponds to between six and 700 people every month going into an acute out-of-area placement, more people going into a placement every month than coming out of a placement every month, even though these are ostensibly the shorter uh, the short placements, uh, cost the NHS £30 million in the last quarter, and it's looked a bit stuck over the last 18 months or so. Overall, they've probably come down by about 10%, but it's looked a bit stuck. Having said that when you examine this in more detail, there's much more to the story than at first sight. Of those 60,000 bed nights to the rolling quarter in in February, 40% of those were accounted for by the five organisations that were most challenged in this respect. 60% of those 60,000 nights were accounted for by the 20% of organisations that were most challenged in this respect. If you have a view that maybe there might be some different challenges that might need different approaches for those very high users of out-of-area placements, then the story for the bulk of trusts, for the 80%, is a lot more positive. And across the 80% of the remaining trusts, acute out-of-area placements have come down by 50% over the last 18 is months. Is
0: that right? Yeah. 50% reduction? Yeah.
6: yeah. So it's a general reduction in out-of-area placements, but that is masked by some very high users have become even higher users.
0: So let me get this right. So you're saying about a quarter of our mental health trusts are probably getting a bit worse. Yeah. yeah, And 75% have actually done quite well.
6: Yeah, it's it, 80%. Uh, wow. the, and the, the, the other thing that's interesting is that if you look back a year or so, those organizations that were struggling have gone on to struggle more. So if those organisations that were, were, that, that were starting to get on top of the problem have continued to do so, where there was challenge, the challenge has become more significant. I mean, I, I think this, this suggests a plan really, which is that across the board there's the developmental and support offer, but there is also I think clear evidence now of what you might call a more operationally and performance or orientated offer where the use of out of area acute placements is very high yes. so why is
0: why why, why why has this problem got worse for this handful of, of trust this twenty percent
6: well i i don 't think i 'm going to speculate on what 's happening in particular organizations but i think what what what, what we 've seen across the board is that the the key to success here i think there are key, three High-level components of the key to, the, to getting hold of this, and it's strong board-level leadership and commitment. So this is board saying, this is wrong. It's ethically indefensible and it's financially catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, it's about strong clinical leadership to deliver on that, and it's about having the courage to form new partnerships across healthcare local authorities, social care and housing to crack it because although we measure these things at the level of provider organisations very often, it can be measured in lots of ways, everybody knows that this is a complex thing that arises in the context of a local health and social care economy. Having said that, our own experience up north was that if you sat on the edge of that saying well it's complex and we're just the symptom of it." That doesn't sort it out. No. It's about finding new partnerships okay. to be proactive in cracking the problem.
0: So Ian, I- Ian Davidson, who's who's leading the uh, GERF work in this area, what what what's what have we been doing in GERF to really try and support trusts and and yeah, you know, uh, as Mike got the, the the diagnosis right, it's about leadership, clinical leadership, partnerships.
9: Um, the the Girth work is just starting, Tim, as you know, and it's building on the, the metrics. Um, I was part of that programme for 18 months that, that uh, was the QDOT of area support programme. I've therefore been to all sorts of systems around the country, I've listened, yeah. I've, I've listened to the ones who are achieving things, I've listened to the ones who were struggling to achieve things. So, well, you're not abandoning that, we're bringing that into the GER programme, all that right. learning. Um, but we are looking intensely at the unwarranted variance and as Mike clearly described, you cannot explain all of that variance to things like deprivation. What I would like to say very strongly though, is that this is not a bed problem, there is a bed problem but the bed problem is a red flag for the fact there is a community care problem and if there was a better community care offer the number of beds we've got would not be so stretched. Um, So one of the problems is that some areas have got large money tied up in a curative area but some areas have actually Almost eliminated that. I have no money tied up in that, but they're still under pressure. I am not going to pretend that there aren't people who are waiting hours to get a bed in a and E around the country or getting in police custody. So it's about the whole system. For those who've got lots of money tied up, they've got an opportunity to, re- to reuse that money a different way. For those who've already brought that money back and are still under pressure but but succeeding in not any particular the area, the answer to that is wise investment as a long-term plan. Yeah. new money that's coming through no absolutely and, and the biggest and so, chunk of that is going to be community
0: mental health and crisis community mental health so that's all, all good
9: news but carry on so if, if you end up with people going out very acutely if you end up with a very high proportion of people ending up in secure or rehab then your actual core community services are struggling and that's the problem investing in the although crisis is the headline term that people use it's actually the ability to move beyond a crisis assessment to some effective treatment having lots of assessments does not actually solve anything. No, um, well, I, and so, that, so, isn't it? So, so <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> what's really critical in this is that the areas that have made great progress are the ones that have developed effective home treatment rather than just doing lots of crisis assessments. And I think that's a really important message, that doing lots of assessments is not the same as actually intervening in a meaningful way.
0: It is, I mean, <laughs> it is something that you hear a lot about, about crisis teams doing the assessment but being divorced from home treatment. And you just
9: wonder how that works. It can work if it's a collaborative thing, but if they are literally divorced and they're just doing assessments, or if people are being seen in A and E and told you need something, but you know you'll get it in due course, um, it doesn't it doesn't tend to work. Those people tend to come back. If you know, so we know a number of metrics, things like Section One Three Six Use, Section Two Use, they indicate there are problems in your community services. People are having to access in emer- other emergency routes to get seen because they can't go through core services.
0: So if, you, if you've got a crisis team that's, that's you know, separate from your, for, from your home
9: treatment, they've got to at least be cohabiting. They've got to be, in terms of a lot, don't forget, some of these places cover a very large geography. Yeah. So it's not necessarily physical cohabitation, but it's very close partnership Function. working and it's about making use of it. And that's why in terms of our area, the biggest single risk factor is going to a service that does not have access to your electronic records yeah, if they don't have your, then they end up asking all the same questions over again and starting from scratch, which adds months of delay, weeks of months of delay, and actually we talk about trauma-informed, but actually making people go over and over and over, trauma they had in childhood is not trauma-informed, it's trauma um, antagonising, it's bringing it to the surface again. Trauma repetition, cool. (laughs) Yes, just to add a note to this,
1: um, I'm fully on board with the idea that, that it's a problem with community services and if we get those right then then that will relieve the pressure on beds. But it's equally vital that if someone needs a bed they get a bed and, and they get it promptly because uh, we're aware of, of six deaths of people who have died after the decisions you have made. This person needs a bed but there's none available. Um, that, that's based on coroner's reports, recent coroner's reports. So I suspect that, that that's not, that, that, that's probably a low estimate. Um, so um, whether it's, uh, well, it, it, the, the metric around out-of-air replacements mustn't stop the decision that if someone needs a bed, they get a bed uh, at that point. And uh, I, I, I guess we all agree
9: with that. We all agree with that. And, yeah. and as the people who the systems are being divisive, what we say is, if someone needs a bed, get them a bed. Turnaways are what we we're saying shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, and that's quite categorical. In our slide pack that we use, that's quite categorical. We're actually asking our metrics about how trusts are making sure they aren't turning people away. So, yes, absolutely. Um, everyone who needs a bed should get a bed. It should be local. But where you can deliver as good a service by not having a bed, why take someone out of the home and put them into a bed? i tell you what, what's really interesting about this is that, that the uh, urgent emergency care
0: program in NHS England contacted me a few months back and said, Oh my god, we've got yeah, people waiting seven days in A E, yeah? In a in a room with a chair. And then you look at it and you find it's the same trust that have got huge out-of-area placements. And then you talk to the police in the same area and they're saying yeah, we can't actually get people out of the out of the cells. So it, it, what's the
9: problem here? Is it too few beds? Um, it's too few beds for the way the system is currently designed because there's too few alternatives to beds. Alternatives to beds may be things like crisis cafes, but they can be an often long-term effective treatment for people. It's not one or the other. It's about a whole range of community options for people. Um, it is about leadership. It is about making sure you've got the right level of investment in the right services. Um, so, you know, that's very important. But, but in the end of the day, what we know is that um, there are many, many people who end up stranded in hospital who do not need to be there. They may have needed to be in hospital for a period of time, but they end up stranded because there's a lack of community services to go back to. So it's, it's, when we do the work, it's about segmenting where the issues are along that pathway, right from your first contact right through to why you end up in rehab or secure anything else but the bit we're focusing on, my bit, is the crisis acute bit, but yeah. that's based, on if you, if you don't have a core community services right, crisis acute can never cope with the demand. One of the good things is because we're driving down stigma, more and more people are seeking help, but if you're asking people to go and seek help, you've got to be delivering help to them. There's no point in people being told to go and see your GP or someone else if you've got a problem, and then there's nothing behind that. So it is very much about using the long-term money and bringing, for those trusts that have got money spent out of area, bringing that money back into local services.
0: No, it's true that if you think about this £2.3 billion extra coming into mental health services, building up to that over the next five years, on top of that, if we solve this problem of out-of-area placements, we're talking about another £1 billion pounds available to spend on community-based mental health. Which is phenomenal,
9: yeah.
0: that would be 3.3 billion. Think of how, yeah, how many more staff we'd be able to employ. Um, okay, so um, Mike, when, when, when you've been looking at this, is, is there any suggestion that areas that have got more beds don't have this problem? Or
6: No, it's the opposite. The, the general pattern is that the areas that don't have high numbers of out-of-area placements have either average or below average number of inpatient uh, beds, uh, that's that's borne out by the NHS benchmarking uh, data. I think a related point, and there isn't there isn't specific data for this, but this is more of a feel about what's coming through, and it relates to the turn-away problem that, that Paul uh, mentioned, is that turnaways may be more likely where there is already high out-of-area placement use, and there's almost a sense of organisational panic in decision-making because of the large numbers of of out-of-area placements. So in a way, I I would tend to think that larger than normal local beds... I mean, there might be all sorts of reasons, but let's keep it simple for the sake of argument. Larger than than normal average uh, local beds, over-occupancy, large use of of out-of-area placements and, and, and the prospect of turnaways are likely to be all symptomatic of similar underlying causes, which is that the system is not being managed as a whole to provide a a timely and compassionate response for people. Okay. Uh, Shree?
5: One of the issues that we do need to understand better from a data perspective is the people who have more complex needs who are on acute wards, because what that's doing is it's taking out a proportion of your bed flow out of action uh, and certainly the data there in the, from the CRISP report onwards, it's individual evaluations, so show up to, some in some places, 30 to 40% of, of acute beds uh, have people who are there for longer than 60 days. And within that then, there are a group of people who are most likely need rehab. So we need to identify them, get them the care that they need, because then you can free up that use of the acute beds uh, in a much better way and reduce then the acute out of areas. And it's really important, I think, to understand where people with complex care pop up around the system and have and eyes and data on all of that. That's what we hope to provide because what that means is we can just get a much better streamlined option for those that group of people which will be a win-win all round.
0: Okay, so uh, it, it sounds like another, another issue is that we've got to have really well streamlined, managed systems of of care so that when people move through beds that they don't spend long periods of time there etc. But you listen to Sue and it's got to be very humane and it's got to be therapeutic and it's got to be fitting that person. Is that
9: quite a big challenge? It's a challenge if you don't have a clear purpose to the admission if you don't know why the person's in as the treating team and the person doesn't know why they're in and, and no one knows what is the metric that they have to achieve to get out then they become trapped and you get into a state of learned helplessness because you're just basically fogged off week to week. So what we know from acute care, um, I've worked in rehab, what we know from rehab is if everyone's clear on what the purpose of admission is and is working on that purpose and you're then using tools like red to green and other things to make sure you stay on purpose every day then you don't have people in and don't get stranded. If you don't know what the purpose is um, and you are having the multiple changes of personnel that's been described, then everything tends to drift. So without the purpose, I'm not saying without the purpose you can't be humane, there are lots of caring, humane people out there, but without the purpose it becomes compassion without real care because the, the compassion on its own isn't enough. You've actually got to deliver the care which helps the person to get back to a better level of life. Sue?
2: Yeah, just to pick up on that, I think there are a lot of um, service users who are stuck in acute and particularly in secure care, and I think actually the compassion bit is really important, but the compassion bit can be the bit that holds people in care, Mm -hmm. because for a lot of, and you talk about the complex needs of some um, users, I think what happens, some people go into services and they finally get somebody who does care about them right. and then they don't want to leave no. and that was particularly a case for the women um, in secure care because they didn't have a really, but, yes, yeah. they didn't really know where they were going and because there wasn't that connectivity with their home teams, particularly those in independent providers or, yeah. or at some distance, there wasn't that connectivity so it, was, it felt better to be in services yeah. than it did to, to, to move on I think there is a population we need to consider I really worry and when we went to secure being only really a risk to other people we had a real problem on our hands because there are a large group of, of services and probably notably women who are, are massive self-harmers huge suicide risk they have very complex needs and I'm not sure where that group of people are going to go and I ro- really worry about that group of people yeah. I think there is a place for the sort of locked rehab experience but at the same time I, I, you know there's a flip side of that and people are, are getting stuck
0: but presumably that the the locked rehab with a big emphasis on the rehab, needs to be at home.
2: Yeah, I think the vast majority of patients want to be close to home. There's no question about that. But I do think there is a very, very small minority in secure care that we mustn't forget, that actually it may be detrimental for them to be close to home. We mustn't forget that group. So if they want to be elsewhere... Well, I think want is, is about more than just... Uh, personal experience about reconnecting with family members where the relationships are broken down I think there's a bigger picture there but there are a very small unique group of people who it's not healthy for them to be at home particularly if there's been victim issues particularly if there's been large press coverage around that person and it would actually be in terms of their safety and their anonymity that would be an issue but it is a very small minority but it's important that I represent that as well
1: sure Paul Yes I think there's a a common thread running through all of these discussions about the various types of inpatient care Uh, and that's the the question there is whether staff on these wards have the expertise and skills to deliver the care that people need Um, and paradoxically the only way that we can minimize um, the number of beds is by providing outstanding inpatient care um, so that when people are admitted they get the care they need um, and and they're they're out of hospital at the earliest possible time Um, and In my view, there's been big disinvestment in the College of Inpatient Care. Um, We we talked about it earlier in relation to mental health rehab wards, I think you mentioned it Sue, which is that many of these um, units are effectively staffed by support workers, unqualified workers. Um, I I visited a learning disability hospital recently, 22 staff on duty, two of them were, were, were registered nurses, the others were support workers. The registered nurses are spending their time dealing with the management of the, of the ward, very little time in patient care, and I suspect very strongly, in fact I know from our inspections that this is also the case of any rehab wards. Um, and on, on the 28th of June we're, we've invited all the directors of nursing to an event where we're going to discuss the quality and safety of, of, of inpatient care. The focus there will be on a, admission wards.
8: Darren? Yeah, I suppose I just wanted to sort of uh, come at the situation from the other side as well, which is to say that in order to have an out-of-area admission, you have to have a bed which is admitting people from somewhere else. And these beds are not all provided by independent sector providers. There are plenty of NHS providers that are essentially operating a system that encourages out-of-area because it's in their interest in some way. So adult eating disorder beds, for example. And presumably it's, it's in their interest because they're making money, yeah. out of or, or maybe because it encourages talent and expertise to generate maybe because it's in the interests of clinicians perhaps because they're doing a good job as far as they're concerned and they they wish to expand that model and offer I, I'm not casting any aspersions but you know for example London has 8 beds per estimated 10,000 of its population with an eating disorder which compares to the southeast of England which has 2 beds per 10,000 people of its possible, four times the number. And, and that kind of variation translates into bed use. So 39% of people in a bed in London for treatment of an adult eating disorder are not from London. And we have to kind of ask providers to be brave and think about cutting back on their bed condition <coughs> and think how they could help the whole system. Because actually there's a self-inflicted harm that comes from this because these inequalities of service are, are obviously going to be mirrored in some other way in another part of the system. So... I mean,
0: and this is one of the problems, you know, with specialist eating disorder services in patients, commissioned by NHS England, our plan is to give those beds to local consortium or collaboratives, um, and that, that those, pro- providers, and those providers then will then use those beds, slim them down, shorter lengths of stay, and use the money liberated to create community services. But there's going to be a problem, isn't there, if they haven't got very many beds
8: Absolutely. in the South I mean, it isn't clear that beds are the right solution for the challenges of looking after people with eating disorders. So it may be that a whole radical new model would be needed in the South East to match its local population. But somewhere in that, the providers in London will have to accept that they will have fewer beds in order to meet the national demand in the best possible way for the people okay now listen we're coming very close to the end we're um,
0: literally within minutes of of finishing um is there there any one single piece of advice to give to chief execs medical directors chief nurses and only one person can speak shri
5: so there's something about we get what we tolerate and this is not flippant it's incredibly difficult you know huge respect to everybody at the end of the line who do amazing jobs in very difficult circumstances but there is something about we get what we accept
0: so let's so not accept this anymore
5: let's not accept out of area
0: absolutely now uh, on that note next month we will be having dr. Claire Garada former Royal College of General Practice uh, uh, chair um, she's also the clinical chair of the NHS National Assembly um, and we're going to be talking uh, about, uh, about, not sick doctors, but um, how do we help people who are pro- professionals with significant health problems, mental health problems. So, um, that leaves me to thank, oh and I should also say Niall Dixon is also coming to talk about that, which um, I'm very pleased uh, we heard yesterday. So, that leaves me just to thank Sue Patchley. John Hendel, uh, David Fernley, who I, I understand is down the line, but um, but we couldn't connect. Hi, right, Tim. Oh, uh, <laughs> at last, you made it at the end. Uh, uh, Daniel Dalton, Mike Hunter, Ian Davidson, Sri Kaladindi, Guy Northover, and Paul Lellia, who I should say is going to be leaving us, and he's going to be travelling around India and, and all the stars for, for a year or so, um, which we're all very envious Um, So that's just to say you've you've got the message. We need board level leadership. We need clinical leadership. We need partnerships with housing and other, other agencies. We've got to have skilled staff on the ward and we've got to bring people back home.